So just a little context here. Patty and I have been on cloud nine this weekend because we're watching our local grandkids here, the two granddaughters. Actually, Tom and Nancy, Uncle Tom and Aunt Nancy are at our house right now watching them while we're leading worship. And um, one of the, you know, one of the great joys for me is watching my wife because she's just a natural mother, grandmother, teacher, you know, you name it. And so she has all kinds of activities and games and plans for them. Um, and I'm trying to figure out how can I help. <laughs> Guys, anybody else in this situation? And, and so one of the things that I know how to do is I know how to prepare some food. So like I'll jump in and say, hey, let me make dinner or let me make lunch. And so one of the, the, the things that I don't normally do is take time out for a snack. But that's an important for a toddler. And uh, so uh, what I have been working on is how can I prepare snacks, and in particular sandwiches, because those are a great go-to meal, um, and they're very little effort. And the favorite, which you're wanting to know from our two uh, that are with us this weekend, the favorites are peanut butter and jelly. If we're in a pinch, we're in a rush, trying to get somewhere, we need it for a snack, we'll just do the peanut butter. And if uh, we want to change up, it might be turkey and mayo. But uh, those are kind of the favorites of the sandwiches. Now you're probably wondering, why is he taking three minutes to talk about sandwiches at the beginning of this sermon? And this is the reason why. Because in our scripture reading today, which is a fairly complex reading, what we have is a sandwich. There are two layers, the very top and the very bottom, and then the really center part, the meat, the protein, that's right on the, the inside there. So what we're going to do today is we're going to take a look at this literary sandwich in our scripture reading. And um, as we take a look at it, let's begin by looking at the slices of bread that make up this literary sandwich. Now the crowd of people believe that Jesus can help them. I mean, it is a big crowd. We're talking hundreds, perhaps thousands of people who have become come down into this little fishing village. We think that Jesus is probably at Peter's mother-in-law's house because uh, they actually have found this house in an archaeological dig, and you can go visit it. You can't go walking through it, but you can see it from a distance. And um, in Peter's mother-in-law's house, there are a couple of references in the scriptures to them being there. And it's right outside of the fishing area uh, near the Sea of Galilee where they would have had their boats. So we think that that house that is being referred to may be that particular one. Now, Jesus' popularity has created a crisis because his popularity has become enormous. It's become very large for the house that they're meeting in and for the community. And when you think about the pressure on this house and the community, um, it, it is quite extensive. I mean, it's one thing for Jesus to help out one or two people. You know, come and I'll do a healing here or a healing there. Um, but to be inundated by hundreds if not thousands of people in on this little fishing community 
becomes complex and problematic. And I get it. I know that if I lived in a community that was being overrun by sick and hungry and homeless people, I might get a little bit nervous too. I would have an innate fear. Like, am I going to be safe? Are we going to make it through this? Do we have the infrastructure? Did anybody think about porta-potties? Um, you know, those are the kinds of things that go through my mind. So I, I, I get it. But they are coming to see Jesus. Does, does that make any difference? Perhaps the community begins to lean on some of Jesus' associates, some of his friends and followers about this particular issue. I mean, if you listen to police um, descriptions today, one of the more popular things is community policing, where they want the police to be in the community. You know, I think that maybe this village might have had village community policing. <laughs> like, you know, let's talk to the people. Let's kind of get to know them. Let's find out where, where they can help us. Um, it, it, that's my sense is that the community went to Jesus' associates and said, that's a lot of people. What can you do to help us here? Well, what's interesting is that it gets translated in most Bibles as Jesus' family, but I just want you to know that that's not the literal translation. The literal translation is Jesus' own people. And uh, when I hear about Jesus' people, um, it could include some of his family, probably extended family, but it could also include uh, some of his friends, some of the followers, maybe childhood friends, some of the followers... You know, it's kind of like the celebrities and the sports athletes that have an entourage. Let my people talk to your people. We'll set up a lunch. So Jesus has got people. I mean, that's impressive, right? And, and, and so the problem is that if you have people, in particular if you have a manager, how do you know that your manager is looking out for your benefit? Maybe the manager begins to think, you know, he's making lots of money. He's not going to miss an extra million. Maybe I'll just add some charges to my bill. So the, the community feels the stress from all the people. The community goes to the associates of Jesus and says, can you do something? Well, they jump at it. It's like, all right, let's go get him. What they say is they went to seize him. They went to take hold of him and to take him out. I mean, to, to completely remove him from the community because they feared that he was maybe a little mentally unstable. Like he'd gone a little bit too far. I mean, hey, the healing was cool, but now you're casting out demons. That's really in the occult. I'm not sure I want to go there with you, Jesus. It's a little bit too far. So some of the family or the associates or some of Jesus' people begin to sell them out. And when they do that, they are not looking out for Jesus. They are not looking out for what God wants. 
They're looking out for what they want. That's what verse 21 gets at when it says, when his family heard, when his associates, when his people heard what was happening, they tried to take him away. He's out of his mind, they said. Have your people call my people. Now, after hearing this, the scribes, who've had a front row seat, they've been inside the house, apparently, watching this whole thing. They've been watching Jesus ever since he began, uh, a couple chapters ago. So the scribes are inside the house. They're watching this. They're seeing Jesus' people begin to turn on him. And maybe some people begin to ask, well, what, what do you guys think? And the scribes who've been watching Jesus say this, he's not crazy. At a moment there, you got, oh, wow, the scribes have some insight. He's not crazy. No, that, this is what they say. He's not crazy. He gets his power from Satan. <laughs> well, that's praising them with not the kind of praise you want to be praised with. Um, he gets his power from Satan. That's, that's what the scribes are saying. Now, um, you know, all a good conflict needs is some agreement on who to attack. And the scribes and Jesus' people have found some people, a person that they can agree on to attack, and that is Jesus. And so as they go about this attack, the conflict grows from there. But before we get into that conflict, let's take a look at the other slice of bread on this literary sandwich. So now we're going to have to go down to the end of this reading for today. At the end, it says that Jesus uh, rebutted the attack from the scribes, the religious leaders, that he is once again confronted by the people who are close to him. This time, Jesus' mother and brothers come to see him. So earlier, it's his people. Now, it's his mother and brothers. Some communication maybe has been happening here, too. Maybe the, the town folks didn't just stop it at the disciples or at Jesus' people, but maybe they went to Jesus' family and said, hey, any close family, get them down here. Let's get them out of here. So Mary and her other boys come down, and they stand outside. Important here, they stand outside because they can't get in. There's so many people. So they're standing outside trying to get to their son, to their brother, and they finally said, Send them a message. Your mother and your brothers are out here looking for you. And the crowd is still so large. As I think about this verse, it's from verse 31 here. As I think, uh, then Jesus' mother and brothers came to see him. They stood outside and sent word for him to come out and talk with them. As I think about this word, I can't tell you the number of times that I have tried to manage a family situation. Sometimes my family, sometimes other people's families, sometimes the church family. And I'll be honest with you, rarely have I succeeded. I have not done well on family management. I haven't done well on church management. And let me explain. So let's use an example of the church here. When I was a younger pastor, I, I would make some decisions 
work with some people in the congregation, define some decisions, we would announce the decisions, and then there'd be another group of people in the congregation who would revolt. And they would say, now I know this is hard to imagine that this could ever happen, but it does. Um, and, and so the, the people would revolt, and, and so then I would go and meet with the revolting people and say, how can I help you understand the decision? Can we back up and, you know, what are your concerns? How can we address those concerns? And, and so then we would try to address those and come to some kind of appeasement. So then I would feel good that we, we finally got somewhere, except that the first group now is really angry and they're threatening to leave the church because they didn't feel like they were respected with their decision. So I've been in a few of these. And I guess what I would just say is that what I have learned over my years of ministry is that, that I'm never going to please all of the people. I'm not ever going to please very many of the people. <laughs> and so what Jesus has taught me in my study of the scriptures is that I cannot please other people. All I can do is please Jesus. And so over the last decade or so of my life, that is what I've dedicated myself to, is how can I make Jesus happy with who I am? How can I improve my relationship with Jesus? I'm certainly not going to solve my family issues. I'm not, certainly not going to solve the church issues. But what I can take care of is me and my relationship with God. And so as we take a look at that, well, let me share more about that later. So those are the layers of the literary sandwich, the two outer layers. The people are upset with Jesus, they're trying to stop him, and they're trying to change him, and they're trying to change the issues. Now let's get to the middle of the sandwich. The scribes are from the temple in Jerusalem. This is the seat of religious power. This is the place of the greatest political power of this region. And they hold both chairs, the political and the religious power. I don't think that they're so concerned about the imposition of the crowds. They're, they're worried about the crowds, but I don't think they're worried so much about the imposition of the crowds upon the community. I mean, Galilee's not even a part of their region of Judea. And so, you know, that's Herod's issue. He's the ruler up there. And so let Herod worry about that. If they don't have the infrastructure, that's not on them. But what they are worried about in relationship to the crowd is what if the crowd begins to understand God in this sense, that you can receive the forgiveness of God. You can actually experience the healing of God. That God can actually cast demons out of you without ever going to the temple. Yikes. I'm glad we didn't have that worry over the last year. Ha 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 ha. You're supposed to laugh at that part. So that, I think, is the issue. What Jesus 
illustrates for us is that the issue is about power. You see, the scribes hear Jesus' associates say that he is mad, and they raise the ante by saying that, in fact, he derives his power to cast out demons from Beelzebul. It's another name for Satan. Interesting, translated literally means Lord of the Flies. Remember that book? <laughs> That'll give us some description of who Beelzebul is. So what I'm thinking of is if Jesus were here today, he might try to make sense of this by saying, because he uses these parables, but the parables are a little difficult for us to understand. Uh, so I've kind of updated them and, and offered them to Jesus if he'd like to use them. Um, so the, the first one is this. On the way to the Super Bowl, the Arizona Cardinals players got into a fight and they decimated the, themselves. They completely destroyed themselves. It doesn't make any sense. Why would a team going to the Super Bowl do that? Or this one. As the family gathered to celebrate Mother on Mother's Day, she went off on every child and told them why she didn't like them, why she didn't want to be around them, and why she detested their activities and their behaviors. And then she said, now let's get on with the meal. Anybody ready to do that one? You see, what Jesus illustrates is that the issue is power. It's God's power. It's not our power. It belongs to God. And God chooses who and where and whom to bestow it upon. You can demand it. You can try to earn it. You can even ask for it. But it doesn't come because of that. God's power comes because God wills it. And Jesus is the most powerful one. That's the reference to the strong man. You know, all these strong men that he's referring to in these parables, Jesus is the real strong man. The real strong man will suffer and go to the cross. The real strong man will take the bullet for everyone. The real strong man will do whatever it takes to bring life. And so the scribes never deny that Jesus is casting out demons. They never say that he is not healing the sick, which I find interesting. They don't ever say that. And believe me, if they did believe that, they would have said it. <laughs> they would have said, he's a fraud. But they know he has power. They know that he is healing by the power of God. They just refuse to accept it. To accept him as God's source of power. Now the scribes have seen these miracles. And yet they don't believe However, wasn't it John the Baptist in the first chapter of Mark who told us that there is one who is coming after him that is much greater than him and that he will baptize people with the Holy Spirit? Go back to Mark 1. Take a look at that. That is what John the Baptist tells us. You see, from Jesus' baptism in the beginning forward, 
He has become God's authorized spirit on earth. When we look at Jesus casting out demons, we get to see Jesus and we get to see the character of God. And God's character is beautiful. God is loving and filled with grace. God is accepting. God is the one who forgives. God reconciles. God seeks justice. And God seeks peace for all. And when we think about that, we are then reminded that Jesus is the image of God. We can understand who God is now by looking to Jesus, the true strong man. But if you're like me, how often have you looked at Jesus and thought, you know, maybe you just went a little bit too far. There's a story in Mark, I think it's chapter 8, towards the end of that chapter. It's right before the transfiguration text in chapter 9. And so Jesus is with his disciples, and he has been asking them, you know, who do people say that I am? And, oh, well, some people say that you're the prophet Elijah. Others think you're Moses. And, you know, you're really cool, but, you know, that's kind of who they think. And then he says to his disciples, who do you say that I am? And this is what Jesus responds, or what Peter responds to Jesus. He says clearly, plainly, on behalf of the twelve, you are the Messiah. You are the Christ. No questions, no doubts. That's in verse 28. There's a little bit more that happens. Jesus begins to tell them, well, you know what? The Son of Man must suffer, must die, must go to the cross. He crucified. On the third day, he'll be raised again from the dead. And as they listen to that, they begin to steam up inside. How dare our Messiah die? And so Peter goes as the spokesman for the group, and he says to Jesus, Actually, what it says is he began to rebuke Jesus. He began to reprimand Jesus. Jesus, stop talking like that. That is ridiculous. You are the Messiah. You're not going to die. And you know what Jesus says? This is where he went too far, according to Steve, who needs some help from Jesus. Because he says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Whoa. He just got equated with Beelzebub, the Lord of the Flies. I mean, for crying out loud. So when we think about what the scribes did, it might be easy to say, yeah, those nasty scribes are always just thinking about themselves. But what about us? Have there been moments in our lives where we've been ready to lose it? We may not be as threatening or as menacing as the scribes were about Jesus. But are we that different? Well, thankfully, Jesus shows us that we are different. You are different. And this is how you are different. You are baptized believers in Jesus. He simply says, 
to his followers, who are my family? Who's my people? And then he answers the question in verses 32 to 35 of our scripture for today. There was a crowd sitting around Jesus, and someone said, Your mother and your brothers are outside asking for you. Jesus replied, Who is my mother? Who are my brothers? Then he looked at those around him, and he said, Look, these are my brothers, my mother, my brothers, and my sisters. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Now, if you, like me, sometimes feel like your closeness to God gets you a special rating or a special connection, this should create some discomfort for you, as it does for me. However, if you have assumed that you are far from God and that God could never accept you, then I hope this reading brings you great hope because it should lift up the dejected. Jesus responds with a simple response of discipleship. And these are the marks of discipleship that Jesus highlights for us in this particular scripture. God is present with you and with me. And he promises to be present with us always. God is with you. Maybe even more importantly, God is for you. When you come, when you receive the gift of God's Son and the body and blood of Jesus Christ, what you are receiving has been given for you. For you. So God is present with us and for us. God's presence and love's makes me want to be in his presence. One of the amazing things is that the more I spend time listening to God, listening to the love and the grace that God shows us in Jesus, the more I want to spend time with God. And I do that through worship. I do that through devotion time. I do that through worship music, through uh, beloved hymns. I do that through Uh, beautiful contemporary music. I I do that in so many different ways. But it's a way for me to be connected with God because God is already connected to to, to me and to you. The third thing that Jesus teaches us in this is that not only will God's presence cause you to desire to be with God, it will also gradually transform you into wanting to do God's will. Think about that. God's will is not something you have to do, nor should you do it. God's will is something that you will just do naturally the more you experience the love of God. Nothing new here. Nothing special. Just living in the love and the presence of God, in the presence of God's spiritual family, 
wanting to enjoy every single moment of it. Down to the peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. Complex scripture, but an important one that reminds us of who God is and who we are. At the end, I'm going to have some questions for you, um, online worshipers, and for those of you who are here in person. And what I'm going to invite you to do is something that I learned to do over this past year in the many different uh, Zoom meetings and conferences and classes that I participated in, is get your camera phone out and be ready to take a picture of those questions when they pop up on the screen. And then you can take them with you this week and you can discuss them in your homes, invite people into your, into your community, to your families, however you want to do it, and um, think about this scripture in that context. Amen.